welcome back to Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 11 of DDG Pod, where we welcome to the guild hall a designer with a bibliography more than 12 parsecs in length, which includes many of the biggest franchises, not only in tabletop gaming, but in all of sci-fi and fantasy literature. As we have discussed in previous episodes of our show, OSR games, those from the Old School Renaissance or Old School Revival movement, are games based on older editions of Dungeons and & Dragons, and often come in the usual fantasy flavors. While we all love swords and sorcery, the traditions of science fiction are just as beloved by tabletop gamers, so it was not long until OSR designs and concepts began venturing out into the stars. Our guest on this episode asked himself, what if Gary Gygax's inspirations for the first role-playing game had not been the works of Jack Vance, Fritz Leiber, and J.R.R. Tolkien, but had been the likes of Frank Herbert, Dr. E.E. Smith, and George Lucas instead? The answer? A drive through RPG platinum best-selling game that takes the original rules off-world. So without further ado, let's get on to our main event. I talk first? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk first. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Also, Poe Dameron reference. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can work that in. Okay. Today, on Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered a man who took the game we played a long, long time ago and set it in a galaxy far, far away. James Spahn. James, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good evening, everybody, or afternoon, or morning, or whenever you happen to be listening to this. This is an absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me, Steve. You've got a real uh, all-star list here, and I'm in company far greater than I deserve. Well, agree to disagree there. I think you're right where you need to be. But on the topic of where you are, what distant star are you calling in from? I live in a tiny town called Nanticoke, which is on the eastern shore of Maryland. I'm on the eastern side of the Chesapeake Bay in a town that's 25 miles from the nearest grocery store and has a whopping population of 200 people. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from here. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. And um, is that where you hail from originally? Originally, I am from North Carolina. I moved to the, not to this specific town, but to this area when I was about eight years old. And no one realizes I'm from North Carolina because when I moved up north, I got made fun of for talking like this all the time and having a big old southern accent. So I very specifically taught myself to speak without an accent. <laughs> okay. Well... Where you're located now is described as a census-designated place located on the Nanticoke River, a marsh-dominated estuary of Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, the eastern shore of Maryland is a swamp, literally. British soldiers used to get hazard pay for tropical environment when they were stationed on the eastern shore. Wow. Yeah, people don't realize that. Like, I live in a swamp. 
Yeah, I'm from Wisconsin originally, and my home state is far marshier than a lot of people realize, too. But that's probably in part because we're mostly just known for being cold. You'd think people would realize that Maryland is marshy since most people know that we filled in a swamp to build D.C. and you're not terribly far from D.C. Right, exactly. And when I say I'm close to the Chesapeake Bay, I can throw a rock out my window and land it in the bay. Nice. Oh, well, that's the advantage. I got a three-bedroom house on the water for $100,000. So. Wow. Yeah. All right. Now, it's a 100-year-old house and still had wiring from the 1920s and we've done nothing but remodel, but... You know, take what I can get. Is it haunted? Uh, no, but we did find a Civil War era gravestone in the backyard that must have been an error stone because it only had one date on it. And it was being flipped over and used as the bottom step when you came down the back steps. <laughs> yes. And it, because it was flipped over, it was perfectly preserved. So we flipped it back up and it now decorates our backyard. Interesting historical decor. But if we could talk a little bit more about your history... So you moved to Maryland when you were eight, you said. When and how did you start gaming? I started gaming through, like so many, my older brother, who's seven years older than me. He was playing AD&D. And, you know, like every kid brother, I wanted to be like my older brother. So I would look through his AD&D 1E books. And I, you know, at seven or eight years old, I didn't know what I was reading. I didn't know what an attack matrix was. But I saw this really cool art. And, you know, I knew what wizards were and elves were. And that's super cool. And I wanted to do that. But I just couldn't. You know how D&D is such a nebulous game to describe until you play it. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he wasn't going to let his eight-year-old brother tag along to a game when he's a bunch of 15-year-old friends. So I just sat there studying his books for like, just for the cool factor for about a year. And I used to do chores around my house to earn an allowance when I was a kid. My parents were very old-fashioned, traditional. If you want an allowance, you had to earn it. And I used to spend it on comic books. And I went down to the local comic book store that was in a flea market at the time. And I walked in to get my comics and I saw on the shelf, on the wire rack, I can still see it today, there was a copy of the Star Wars role-playing game, the first edition by West End Games with that Luke Han and Leia cover where Luke's pointing the blaster out. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, that's really cool. And I asked the guy who owned the shop, I said, how much is it? He said, it's $15. Well, I didn't have 15 bucks. I was just there to pick up like three or four comic books. And so I said, okay. And I came back out and got in the car. And my dad said, you get your comics? I said, no, I want to save my money. There's a book that I want. He was like, okay. So I worked my butt off the next week. And I came back and I, I didn't understand D&D, but I knew what a blaster was. I knew what a lightsaber was. I had spent my entire life watching. So we had it on Betamax. I watched Star Wars over and over and over again. So the familiarity with the setting combined with the simplicity of the D6 system, that became my first role-playing game exposure was West End Star Wars. Did you have to then introduce it to your friends or how did you go about playing it? That's exactly what I did. I had one or two of my buddies who were willing to put up with the idea of this what then seemed like a massive rule book when, you know, really the rules for Star Wars can be summed up in like four pages. And, you know, infinite number of one shots because there's like 18 templates. Like, oh, I want to play a bounty hunter. Oh, I want to play a smuggler. Oh, I want to play a Jedi. So we never played a campaign, but we did all these really badly run one shots like you do when you're figuring it out. After a couple years, I think it was in 91, the basic D&D black box set came out. Big coffin box with the red dragon on the cover. It was black. A buddy of mine picked that up. The same guy I've been playing Star Wars with or trying to play Star Wars with. And he was like, I don't understand this, but you seem to really like these games. You can have this if you'll run it for me. So I started running D&D from that. And that was, you know, BX with a kind of a board game. It had a lot of paper minis and a, and a, a fold-out mat for a board. And that was really when I started playing D&D. And then that's when we really kind of started to get it. And then later that year or in the same year, 
the rules cyclopedia came out and that became my version of D&D, the one that I understood and the one that really grokked in my brain and kind of solidified me as a gamer that I would be for the rest of my life. Okay. And so that would have been the Beck Me set? Uh, yeah, it was the Rule Cyclopedia specifically, which I think I think it had loose information for the Immortals set, but I've never actually read the Immortals box. Okay. But yeah, I played RC like through high school. Like that's what we did. You know, we, we played it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Pretty much, I think junior, senior year, we started playing second edition, AD&D, but we played RC for years years and years and years like and played it badly like you do in junior high and high school mm-hmm. monty hall campaigns oh one session is a level you know that kind of you know you look back and you're like oh i should be ashamed of myself <laughs> well like you said we've pretty much all been there so you technically started with western games star wars and then of course played D. Were there any other games that were major influences in your earlier years as a gamer i got really 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 into white wolf world of darkness Okay. As the Toreador tattoo on my left arm will attest. Oh, wow. Yeah. I got really, really into White Wolf games. And really, are you familiar with GNS theory, Game as Narrative Simulationist? Sure. But could you go ahead and explain GNS? It hasn't come up on the show before, and listeners might be interested in learning about it. I'm probably going to get it wrong. Okay. So forgive me if I get it wrong because it's been years since I read it. But GNS theory, I believe, was put forth back in the old days. There was a forum of independent game designers called The Forge. Mm-hmm. And there was a guy on there named Ron Edwards. He's He did a game called Sorcerer. And GNS theory puts forth that there are, generally speaking, three types of gamers who play role-playing games. There are gamists, narrativists, and simulationists. Gamists see it as a game to win. We would often think of these as min-maxers. That does not necessarily make gamists bad. It's a style of enjoyment of the game. You want the best stats, you want the best gear, you want to overcome the problems. Narrativists want a deep immersion story or character experience. They're less concerned with stats and less concerned with the game they're playing. They are interested in their character and the story that that character is experiencing and helping to tell. Simulationists want an accurate representation of the world being experienced or the situation being presented. So they're playing a combat-heavy game. They're going to want high-detailed, crunchy combat rules. But if they're playing a game set in, say, Star Wars, they're going to want the deep immersion. You know, They're going to want to know that it's a Blast Tech DL-44 heavy blaster pistol and not just a gun. You know, they're going to want to know what it takes to make the Kessel Run 12 parsecs. They're interested in that simulation immersion. And I brought it up because I went from being very gamist in high school and junior high to being very narrativist. And to be honest, White Wolf really appealed to me because you got to make these deep, deep characters. And honestly, I turned into a really self-important guy for a while. Like, I, you know, I was this deep role player and, you know, exploring character depth. And, you know, I thought that made me so much of a better person than, you know, all these people who were still playing D&D. Like, you know, it was, I was a jerk. And I still dabbled in other games. I played, you know, Shadowrun. I played a lot of Shadowrun. I love Shadowrun. One of the most fun gonzo, just over-the-top settings out there. I I dabbled in pretty much any role-playing game I could find. I was in love with the medium. So anything I could read, I would try to play or try to run. And I was always the DM because I was always Mr. Enthusiastic. And I was the guy willing to read the rule books. So I, I was just all over the map. But I always would come back for about 10 years back to White Wolf games, whether it was Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, Wraith. I absolutely fell in love with and still absolutely love Changeling the Dreaming. 
It's one of my favorite role-playing games of all time. I met my wife at a Vampire the Masquerade game, and we truly bonded and fell in love over Changeling the Dreaming and our shared affection for that game. And we both had such a passion for the game that we would debate the politics of this fictional game as passionately as people debate real-world politics in public. People would be like, "Why? what, what are you arguing over? <laughs> and, and, and she'd be arguing over commoners' rights, and I'd be arguing over the mandate of the Dreaming that she should rule. And, you know, it, it, we were just getting these heated, just going at each other it was great i love that game i love that game so much we still have all our books from back when we were kids and you know they they have a special place in our hearts to the point when we got married we took our wedding vows from changeling there's an oath oath of the true hearts and that's what we use for our wedding vows so that game had a real huge impact on me once i got over myself in my 20s and i realized gaming is fun if you're having fun it doesn't matter what you're playing as long as you're having fun Mm -hmm. i really got into 3e and and, you know you had the d20 boom and everything became d20 and i fell in with a really really good solid group of gamers one of whom was my wife though she wasn't wife at the time and we were together for like 10 years. It was just this central group. And we played everything under the sun, but it always seemed to come back to 3E. And we even had the great white whale of we had a 3E game that we played for four or five years straight every weekend. So we literally went from first to, I think, by the time my druid, st- I stopped playing and he was 32nd level. And it was all XP'd out. It wasn't like you gain a level, you gain a level, you gain a level. It was we earned it through XP. So we had this true grand campaign that most of us never get to experience. And I'm super thankful for that. Uh, We played a lot of the third edition Ravenloft because they did it as a campaign setting. Mm -hmm. And it was published by a company called Sword and Sorcery, which was actually White Wolf's D20 imprint. So the guys from White Wolf did Ravenloft and they gave it that White Wolf treatment. It was gothy and it was romantic. And that was one of the other. I ran a campaign of that where they went from first to 16th level in one large story arc. And you know that was over a decade ago, and the players and I still talk about that. And a couple of movies that it was the best game they ever played in, which was huge praise to me, because it was just one giant continuous story, and everybody had a huge important role, and it was this great big emotional campaign that everybody loved, which is so satisfying as a DM. You dream of having that one group, that one campaign, that you just look back on and go, man, that was great. And so we played the heck out of 3rd edition, particularly Forgotten Realms with the 37 little campaign, and Ravenloft were the two big ones. Did you play mostly published settings for third edition? Mostly, yeah. One guy in our group was really, really into Forgotten Realms, like knew the lore of the setting really well. So he always wanted to run Forgotten Realms, and there was so much we could do in the setting that we just did that. And we had people who were much casual players, so they didn't want a world that they weren't familiar with. So they didn't want to have to be described, you know, oh, this is what this history is and this is what this culture is. They liked having a book they could look to and read a couple paragraphs on to get a sense of the setting, which is fair. So we, we stuck to a lot of traditional published campaign settings. Every time someone would go off the rails or do something unusual, it was usually a one-shot. We did a lot of weird indie one-shots, a lot of games that originally were put out, you know, by the designers of the guys on the Forge. One of my buddies was really into the Forge. We playtested games like My Life with Master and Dust Devils and, you know, these really niche indie games before you started seeing that market blow up through drive through So it was almost a prelude to what it has become now, where so much stuff is available, print-on-demand, and it feels like, you know, one half of the industry is all that. So... But yeah, it was mostly pre-published campaign settings. Okay. Now, were you mostly running, mostly playing, a good balance of both? I was almost always the GM. Okay. Because I knew Ravenloft better than anybody else. And I ran Star Wars and I read every version of Star Wars they ever wrote. And I knew Star Wars really well. We played it. Oh my God. We had a great Star Wars campaign. And it was the first time I ever ran a Star Wars campaign where I broke canon. 
and it was the best campaign we ever ran. I'm not a fan of the Star Wars D20 system, but that group bought into the themes and tropes and tones of the setting so well that system got out of the way. Nobody cared about the system. And that game lasted a while. I don't even know what level they were, but we had a full story. And when it came to a close, everybody agreed, yeah, we should stop here. That was a really good series of Star Wars movies. So... Interesting. Uh, you said that's the only campaign where you broke canon. How'd you end up breaking canon? Oh, okay. So this is how long ago it was. It was before Revenge of the Sith came out. So we're going back, you know, 20 years or whatever. We were running D20 Revised, and it was an all-Jedi group. And the deal was they were fighting in the Clone Wars, and one of my players, I always had the idea that, you know, Palpatine's grooming Anakin, but Palpatine's not the kind of guy to put all his eggs in one basket. So I figured he would have several potential, you know, proverbial Darth Vader's waiting in the wings and let the best one come out. So one of my players was one of his other guys who he was trying to corrupt to the dark side. And I don't remember the circumstances of what happened, but basically the events of what we would now think of as Order 66 went down. But in my campaign, because we didn't know any of that was going to happen because the movie hadn't come out yet. Instead of it being the clones turning on the Jedi, I just had Palpatine and Anakin come into the temple and just start trying to wreck the house. And in the old D20 revised system, if you critical hit somebody, it came right off their wound points. When your your wound points at zero, you were dead. And your wound points were equal to your con score, and they never changed. So you hit somebody with a lightsaber just four to eight, you're going to kill them if you crit them. So they rolled up into combat with Palpatine and Anakin, and there were literally five 20s in a row between initiative and attack rolls. So in one round, they kill Anakin Skywalker, and they kill Emperor Palpatine. And the player who was being groomed to be Palpatine's apprentice, felt so betrayed that when Palpatine was dead, he said, I destroy his Sith lightsaber. I said, okay. 20 minutes later, the Republic Guard rolls up, and with them comes Padme Amidala, who is now pregnant with Anakin's kid. And she looks at them and says, what happened? She says, oh my God, they murdered the Chancellor and his bodyguard. Because in my campaign, I built the relationship that Anakin was assigned as Chancellor's bodyguard, and that's how they got to be so close. So she ends up turning to Count Dooku and is like, you were right. The Jedi are trying to destroy the Republic. And he's like, see, I told you. So the Clone Wars came to an end in my campaign when the Separatists and the Republic realigned and formed the Galactic Empire with Empress Padme Amidala as the newly elected ruler due to a sympathy vote in the wake of the death of her mentor and former Chancellor Palpatine. Dooku gave her the plans to the Death Star. She used them to kind of Tarkin-esque, you know, put the galaxy under an iron grip. And when the Senate said, wait a minute, you're taking too much power, she used the Death Star to blow up Coruscant and declare herself the Empress. The remnants of the survivors in the Senate formed the Rebellion. And the Rebellion ended up being mostly Gungans and Naboo natives who were watching her go insane. And the players, as the Jedi Order were being destroyed, ended up making a blind jump to hyperspace, ended up over Endor, were pursued by the now Empire, but convinced a fleet of Naboo N1 starfighters to attack the Death Star a la A New Hope style. So... The campaign ended with this massive starfighter battle of N1 starfighters attacking the Death Star on the outside, while the remaining player characters were sneaking into the Death Star on a timetable to rescue her newborn children from, you know, being destroyed because they were going to be the last hope of the Jedi because the PCs were literally other than like three other Jedi, the only Jedi left alive in the galaxy. And the campaign ended with them blowing up the Death Star. Bail Organa became the leader of the restored New Republic. And he said to the player characters, I offer you a seat on the Jedi Council again. And the players said, no, the Jedi will never again be associated with the Republic or its politics. We will operate as an independent entity. 
and they went off into the unknown regions with Luke and Leia as babies. And that was how the campaign ended. Wow. It was awesome. <laughs> it was so awesome. Yeah, that is so cool. What kind of an oh shit moment was it when Palpatine and Anakin are both dead and you now basically have to reinvent Star Wars? Well, it was funny because not only was it an oh shit moment for me, everyone at the table just stopped and looked at each other. Like, what just happened? And they knew that I was not a guy who liked to break count. I used to be super sacred about my Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, you know what? Let's roll with it. And they were like, they looked at me like in shock. And, and so we did. And it ended up being the best Star Wars campaign I ever played. To this day, one of the players in it was my wife. And when they were hiding out on Endor, they encountered some Ewoks and the Ewoks were going to eat them. To this day, I can look at my wife and say, Kyrie no Ipcha, which in the campaign meant in Ewok, Kyrie is not food. Her character's name was Kyrie. 20 years later, I can look at my wife and go, Kyrie Ipcha? And she'll go, Kyrie no Ipcha. Or I can bring it up with the other players who I haven't seen in 10 years. And we haven't played this campaign in almost 20 years. And we will still tell stories about, you know, the various ins and outs. And one of the Jedi turned to the dark side and tried to ally with Dooku to be his apprentice and the showdown between the PC and the rest of the group. And it was great. It was just so much fun. And it came from breaking canon. And it had nothing to do with the rules other than, an, oddly enough, a weird rule where if you crit somebody, you can kill them in one hit in Star Wars D20. If that rule hadn't existed, that whole campaign wouldn't have happened. All right. And that, you know, speaks to the importance of game design. Absolutely. Which is what this podcast is about. So that's wonderful. And that story is obviously very relevant to the topic that we're discussing on this episode but you do have a lot of great stories to tell. Are there a few others you wanted to cover before we get into the game? I'm sure more will pop into my head as we go through things. You know, 30 years of this kind of... Oh, yeah, I had a vampire game where I made a, a kid cry. She'd never role-played before and always wanted to play vampire because she heard it was deep and emotional. So I made her cry her first time she played vampire. And wow. she loved it. She was like, that was great. You know, it was just a regular vampire game. They made traditional cam vampires, you know, neonates, no big deal. And they got assigned to go investigate. There were Sabbat on the edge of town. So they went to go check it out. It was in a suburb on the edge of town. And they found this seven-year-old girl who had been embraced without permission. And when they came upon her, she had locked herself in her bedroom. Her parents were out of town. She had been embraced. They couldn't figure out by who. And her babysitter, when she saw what happened, freaked out and fled the house. This kid's alone in the house. So they go into this little seven-year-old girl's house. And she's covered in blood. And after a few minutes, they figured out she frenzied and ate her dog. And they spent two hours trying to convince her to come with them. And she's scared. She would come with them. And they realized they couldn't really intimidate her because that would just scare her off or run the risk of her frenzying again. So at one point, the little girl looks at the new player, the 16-year-old kid who'd never played vampire before, and said, if I go with you, will you fix my puppy? And so she lied to me. Oh, it gets worse. I know you're a dog person. I'm a dog person. So like I knew I'm going to hit him right in the fields. And she looked at this kid. Like I could see that saran wrap of tears in her eyes. And I'm falling. She's like, "Uh uh-huh. We'll fix knowing she's lying to the kid. There's no saving that dog. So they take the kid back to the prince and they put the kid in another room. And the prince is like, I will have no unauthorized embraces within my territory. Kill it. What do you mean it? And the prince is like, it, it is an it. It does not exist. You will destroy it. And the same player, the girl goes, you can't to the prince of the city. And the prince of the city just looks at her and goes, you know what? You're right, but you can. And the player was like, 
like you can see like the brakes just got hit. Either you can kill her or you can take her place. So I basically put this poor rookie player who wanted the full vampire experience in the position where she had to stake an innocent who had been no control over her situation. And it was all because of politics and the horrors of vampire society. And by the time the game was over, the player had tears running down her face and was wonderful because she never took it personal like as much of an experience as it was to this person's credit they recognized it as a narrative experience and almost like stage acting or watching a good movie and that was i was there's a risky proposition because you know a lot of people aren't comfortable with these dark themes in games this was back back in a time before these things were really addressed openly you just kind of shot it out there and saw how it went you're talking like 2002 2003 so it it was a risk because i didn't know her that well I didn't know if I was going to upset this kid, but I was like, okay, she wants the full nine of a vampire experience. Let's give her the full nine of a vampire experience. And she said, that was great. I want to do that again. I, I, I want to keep playing this game. And unfortunately, we, uh, you know, as often happens, we never got together again. We never all played together again, but I got to give this person who'd never played a role-playing game an experience that moved them in some fashion. That's the most rewarding thing you can ever do as a DM. Yeah, I agree entirely. Well, that was a great story. Thank you for telling it. The Star Wars story is definitely making the cut. I'll have to think about the vampire one, but we can probably include it. Now, you mentioned while we were talking earlier that you have a story about a Rifts game that might be too dark for the show. If you're still up for telling it, why don't we hear it? We can decide afterwards whether or not we should leave it in the recording. Okay, that's fair. The story is very personal. I don't have a problem with it being personal, but it's very personal. So we were playing Rifts. And I am not a fan of Rifts to begin with. I think it's a house-brewed D&D system that needs serious revision to be functional instead of constantly having new rules tacked onto it over the course of 25 years. But it's what everyone at the table wanted to play. And at the time, I was about 22, 21. And the girl I was with at the time, not the girl who is now my wife, but the girl I dated seriously before her, was that girl who's your first love. And, you know, you're going to get married and everything's going to be perfect. And And I'm too busy, you know, being a 20-something-year-old with my head stuck up my ass. And I, I was arrogant and, you know, just moody. I was, you know, trying to do right, but still so self-important that every problem in my life was everybody else's fault. And the girl said to me, I'm tired of dealing with your emotional problems. You need to get your shit together or I'm out. And that was fair. She said, you've never been mean to me. You've never done anything to me, but you're self-destructive. You don't see it, but you're self-destructive. And I can't be around to watch you fall apart. I just can't. And I was like, okay, that's fair. I mean, and to be fair, I'd had 14 jobs in 12 months. It was just that kind of like just chronic, you know, self-destructive behavior. And we were in a gaming group and it was mostly her friends. It was me and her and a guy I'd known for 15 years. And then everybody else at the table was her friends. And there was a guy at the table who was, how do I put this? Mean-spirited, just one of those people that just defaults to being mean-spirited, was funny and charming and entertaining, but just mean-spirited. You know, liked to tear people down, liked to bully people, but would, you know, laugh about it to diffuse things. And he and I didn't get along. Like, I mean, there was never open hostility between it, but it was clear that there was tension. And I said to the girl at the time, I said, I don't want to game with him anymore. And she said, well, then you need to think of it as a way of confronting your own ego and anger issues. And so I went to a session and I... got done and I said, I don't want to keep gaming with him. And at the time I was seeing a professional and she said, think of it as a way of testing what you're learning from the therapist. And on a second time, and he's still rude and mean spirited. And I said to her, I said, I really, really don't want to get in with this guy. And she said to me, the trump card, do it for me. 
So the third, and we've been gaming for months with these people. There's those last three sessions in that, that prelude that really stand out. We were playing, and Rift has weird rules. Like, there's some weird, you know, charts and rules in there. And I was wearing power armor. And my character got hit in the back of the head by somebody who was basically using a large tree log. And the way the dice rolled out, he was rendered mentally handicapped. All his mental attributes got reduced to, like, four. And when that happened, this guy looked across the table at me and he said, I'll never forget it. He looked right at me and he said, finally, a character you can play on your own level. It was clear he was just trying to be serpentine and i took a deep breath and i tossed my pencil on the table and i let it go and i was really really angry and he saw he'd gotten under my skin and he said oh i'm sorry that was untoward of me i guess that's giving you too much credit isn't it and i just looked across the table and you can believe this if you want i said you know what man fuck you and he completely lost his crap grabbed the entire gaming table threw it across the room to get it out of the way between us reached over grabbed a bench pressing pole swung it across where the table was at me. I stood up and scrambled backwards, getting out of the way of the pole. It came crashing down. And this was an open floor plan room. I turned on my heel to leave the room. And he ran up behind me. He's bigger than I was. I'm a big dude. I'm 6'2". He ran up behind me and hooked his arm around my neck and hooked his foot around my ankle and started pulling up. He was trying to break my neck. And I will never forget, I remember feeling my vision tunnel out. I was going to pass out. And the last thing I remember doing, I said, well, if I drop weight, maybe he'll let go. And I dropped weight, and he did. It was shocked, and he let me go. And I got to my feet, kind of got my bearings, put my hand on the doorknob to leave the house. And I heard behind me, shink. And I turn as I'm opening the door, and I see him coming behind me with a carving knife in his hand to stab me in the back with three of the other people holding him back, yelling, no, no, he isn't worth it. So I get out the door. The aftermath of the incident, everyone blames me, including my girlfriend at the time, including my friend I've known for 15 years, saying, you're being too sensitive. You know how he is. It's not really his fault. Every single one of my friends turned on me at that table. And it led to the end of my relationship with the girl, which in hindsight was the best thing that ever happened because I wouldn't have met my wife and had this awesome life that I do now. But for six to nine months, it was a very, very, very dark period in the aftermath of that incident. But I still wanted the game. I wasn't giving up D&D. It wasn't the game's fault. But that was a rough time, man. Uh, I, I know you can't see me, but my mouth was actually hanging open for most of that. Like, holy shit. <laughs> um, wow. Was, I, I was I was sitting there waiting to like make a joke about how because I figured in with you breaking up with her, I was gonna make a joke about how Rifts drove a rift. But God, I can't. Like, it's just, wow. It, um, it was it was a time, man. And I, the hardest part telling that story is not using their names. Funny thing is, I saw her 10 years later. And she had married one of the other guys in the gaming group, a guy who we had gotten to be friends. And they were happily married and good on them. I'm really glad because I really loved that girl in spite of being an immature jerk, so self-absorbed. I really loved that girl. And I'm glad she's happy. Like that, that in the end, that's what matters. Eventually, everybody distanced themselves from crazy guy. I was going to say, is he in prison or? I don't know. Funny story, a okay. funny postscript. Several years later, I was at community college and crazy guy had an unusual last name. And I was in the lounge with a couple of my friends and this other person walks in and somebody introduced me and said, oh, this is, and it's the same last name as crazy guy. And I looked at her and it was an unusual last name. I said, oh, are you related to? And I said, crazy guy's name. And she went, oh yeah, he's my cousin. And I went, yeah, he's an asshole. And she's like, oh, so you know the real him and not the front he puts up. Didn't miss a beat. Immediately knew that I knew who the real guy really was and we became instant friends from that moment and if she's listening Allie you're awesome love you 
but yeah, it, it was funny that it would pop up, you know, several years later. But yeah, the, the girl moved on and, and one of the guys in the group and they got married and they're happy and good for them. And I'm genuinely thrilled for them. And honestly, the guy who attacked me, I genuinely hope he got the professional help he needs. Okay, There's a lot of pain there, obviously. You know, and I don't wish the level of, I guess, pain would, that he's going through to, to have that reaction to other people on anybody like that's just got to be a miserable existence and it, it might sound sanctimonious but it's sincere i got no malice for anybody from that day none at all now do you want the unhappy story no i'm kidding that's about as dark as it gets in my gaming life that was definitely a rough moment yeah well for your sake i would hope that's as dark as it gets wow well we have a lot of gaming experiences and far more good ones than bad ones it sounds like but when did you first start designing games I stuck my toe in the water in the early 2000s. I did some playtesting on the Saga edition of Star Wars. And then I was like, I wonder if I can do this professionally. And it was during the height of the D20 boom. And it was when PDFs were just starting to be a thing. So I did a little bit of like third edition OGL stuff. But even that, I was more being taken advantage of than being taken seriously. It was like, yeah, write a 30-page book and I'll pay you five bucks kind of thing. I started to take it seriously when I walked into my local game shop at the time and I saw the slipcover for the One Ring. And I'm a huge, huge Tolkien fan. And I had read Merp, but never played it. And I'd read and played the Decipher Lord of the Rings role-playing game. And I liked the Decipher version enough. I, I'm not as big a fan of Merp, but in both cases, it was the setting bent to fit the system. And I'd never seen a system built to emulate Tolkien's sub-creation. But when I read The One Ring, I fell in love with that game because it did that. It's Tolkien there on the page. It's Middle-earth right there. It's all the subtlety and the beauty of that world. And I remember looking at the, the slipcase in my hand and going, I'm going to write for this game. Somehow, by hook or by crook, I will. And as Providence would have it, a few weeks later, my wife saw that I had bought it on the credit card statement and said, look, if you want to keep buying gaming books, and she understands, she's a gamer, but if you want to keep buying gaming books at this rate, you got to make more money. So I started Barrel Rider Games. Right down to the title, Barrel Rider is, you know, a reference to Tolkien. Absolutely. It was just Labyrinth Lord $1 classes. And the idea was my stuff's garbage. I have no experience. Nobody should ever pay more than the cost of a can of soda for something I write. And I started it with like $20 in stock art. And that was it. And I put out like four products and just put them out there. You know, and you'd make 20, 30 bucks a month. But I slowly over three, four years would write up another class and add it to the products page. Write up another class, add it to the products page. To the point where at one point I had a hundred BX style class variants up there. And I was just starting to get some attention just because I was just kind of a workhorse. So you put out enough and people just start, oh, well, yeah, that's the guy who does the BX classes. And I noticed a friend of mine who was also on that side of the industry said, I know you're a big Labyrinth Lord guy, but have you taken a look at Swords and Wizard? And I was like, yeah, I'm really kind of happy in the BX arena. And he's like, no, I'll take a look at it. And I looked at Swords and Wizardry Complete and it's great. I love that game. But then I noticed White Box in the corner and nobody had done, I mean, Swords and Wizardry Complete, you can find third party products for that if you throw a rock in a vague direction, which is great because it lets you make it any kind of fun. <laughs> I mean, am I wrong? I mean, that's, you know, and that's not that's not a disparagement to the game. That's a credit to it. And I say that as someone who has written third-party stuff for Swords and Wizardry Complete, you know, right. and a couple of things for the frogs. But I noticed nobody had done anything with White Box. White Box was just sitting there alone. I found one module third-party published called, like, The Nameless City, and nobody had done anything. 
So I picked up a copy of it and it's like $5 for $10 for a soft cover. And I'm like, this is solid. This is a great cleanup of the original 74 rules and a solid chassis to build on. And I am a writer first and foremost. I am not an editor. I am not a layout guy. Not my forte, not at all. And I thought, okay, what if I turn that weakness into a strength and by making the layout look low end, it appeals to that early 70s style. So I did a white box supplement that had a couple of white box classes, and they were basically AD&D style classes pared down to work within white box framework. And it sold really well. I mean, I didn't make thousands of dollars on it, but it got noticed. Mm -hmm. And then I did a book like that that was white box monsters. And then I did a book like that that was white box magic items. And then I did three adventures. While I'm doing all this indie stuff, the whole reason I started Barrel Rider was I wanted to write... For the one ring that was still you know the ultimate goal and at the time i was working volunteering at a tolkien themed news website it's now defunct and i used my work on that website to get an interview with john hodgson who was the art director for the one ring first edition i sent him a blind facebook message hey man can i do an interview with you for this website and he was kind enough to say yes this wonderful interview. He's a great guy. I love John. We still talk. And I was like, holy crap, I got John Hodgson. And so then I, I said, well, let me see if I can get anybody else on the one ring. I asked Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And he did an interview. I was like, holy moly. So then I was like, well, dare I ask? I asked Francesco Napatello, who to me was like the Gandalf of Tolkien games. This is the guy who made the War of the Ring board game. He was, you know, next level in my eyes. And he agreed. And we had this great interview. And at this point, the website kind of transitioned from Tolkien focus to general sci-fi fantasy. But I'm still a tabletop gamer. So I looked at what else Cubicle 7 was offering. And they had this game called Rocket Age. And Rocket Age is very 30s, 40s pulp. It is bubble helmets and rocket packs and ray guns and, you know, Martians, you know, flying saucers. It's awesome. And I was like, I love that stuff. And I looked up who the lead designer that was. And that was a guy named Ken Spencer. And I asked him for an interview. He gave one. And I said to him, I said, you know, Ken, I know I'm just a little indie guy, but if you're ever looking for writers on Rocket Age, I'd love to write for Rocket Age. And... He said, yeah, sure, I'll keep you in mind. And a few weeks later, six weeks or so later, he said, hey, man, do you want to write an adventure for Rocket Age? And I said, heck yeah, I want to write an adventure for Rocket Age. And I wrote an adventure called Warlord of the Gravitic Portal, which it being 30s-style pulp, I'm all about turn it up to 12, rip the knob off, and throw it across the room. And the adventure culminates with the players having to stop a transdimensional portal from causing Earth and Mars to smash together in a billion pieces, killing all life on both planets. Because why go small? Mm -hmm. And as it would turn out, back when I was doing little, like, third edition, low-end stuff, I had written a manuscript for a guy who ran a company called Steam Power Publishing. And it was like a 50,000 word manuscript. And literally the day after I finished it, and I was reviewing it to send it to him, he informed me that he was closing shop because the bubble had popped and, you know, it was all going downhill. They announced fourth edition and everything was just gone. You know, fast forward 10 years later, and he's the line editor on the One Ring for Cubicle 7. He remembered me. He remembered that I gave him a 50,000 word manuscript in six weeks. You know, that didn't end up going anywhere. And he's like, hey, you wouldn't be interested in writing for the One Ring, would you? And I was like, oh, you know, oh my God. You know, I, I cried when I got that email. Honest, I had tears running down my face. Like, oh my God, I'm going to get to do this, the impossible thing. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. And I wonder if I'll ever get to do The Shire. Because as much as I love Lord of the Rings, I'm especially obsessed with hobbits and hobbit culture and their background and their history and just halflings in general. So while I'm doing all this Barrel Rider game stuff, I'm also freelancing. And I worked on like seven or eight One Ring books in some capacity or another. A lot of which got translated to the fifth edition, Adventures in Middle-Earth. And having that IP under my belt 
helped me get other small freelance gigs. And the exposure in the old school side of things independently led companies like, you know, Frog God to start noticing me. So I was really starting to like chip away at things. And then with the success of all the white box products, I remember I put out the white box omnibus, which was the three adventures I've written for white box, the classes, the magic items, the monsters, and some new material all in one hardcover, softcover book. And it did really well. When I first started doing White Box, my thought was either this is an underserved market that nobody cares about, or this is an underserved market where there's a niche to be filled. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me that this was a niche to be filled. And I'll never forget one day, I have a screenshot of it somewhere because I'm so proud of it. Back when you had Drive-Thru and RPG Now, when they were two separate sites, on RPG Now, at one day, I had the number one, number two, number three, and number four product. It was three of my white box products and then one of the one ring books I'd contributed to all in the one, two, three, four slots. And I was awesome. like, that's too cool. Like, I mean, it doesn't mean a whole lot, but it's, it's neat to be like, oh, that's really neat. That was a real boost. And then I said, well, you know what? White box is a success. People really like this. And I just got in the one ring. I said, man, I'd really like to do Star Wars. Like, wouldn't that be cool? So I have an old friend of mine who was a writer on the D6 line, a guy named Wayne Humphrey. Love him to death. Hope he doesn't hear this podcast to hear me say that. I hope he does um, hear this and podcast. I sent him, well, we give each other crap. I sent him a fan email when I was 15 years old. You know, We've stayed in contact over 20 years, 25 years. He's become one of my best friends in the world. And he encouraged me when I was 15 years old. He's like, if you want to do this, do it. Chase it. You know, And we'd fall out of contact for a couple years, but we'd always get back together. And it was never like nothing happened. We were just right back to it. And he encouraged me from the time I was 15 years old to write professionally in the industry. And I said, hey, Wayne, I know you haven't done stuff since D6, but do you know anybody still writing Star Wars RPGs? And he's like, yeah, man, Sterling's still going strong, Sterling Hershey. And he's like, can you put me in contact with Sterling? And he said, yeah. So I, he basically put me in a Facebook chat with him and Sterling Hershey. And Sterling Hershey's like, man, I can't tell you anything except contact Sam Stewart over at Fantasy Flight Games. He's out of the RPGs. And I was like, hey, that's a lead. I'll take that. Mm -hmm. So I sent Sam Stewart this email. And... I said, you know, basically, hi, I'm a nerd who loves Star Wars and I've already written for one IP, so I know what it means to, you know, have a non-disclosure agreement and respect it. You know, you're looking for writers on Star Wars. Never thinking he would get back to me, but at least I'd taken my shot, you know. So he emails me back and he says, well, have you played it and what do you think? And I had played it and I decided to give him an honest opinion of what I thought of Fantasy Flight Star Wars' role-playing game. And I said to him, I said, you have a $60 rule book that is 500 pages. You have $15 proprietary non numeric dice. The game is extremely barrier heavy to enter and using a symbol based non-numeric core mechanic it reads like a train wreck on the page. I said now if you sit down and play the game it plays like a dream but I feel the barrier to entry both in the design and the cost of the product is a problem. And I remember when I wrote that, I said, well, I could send that to him because that's my honest opinion. Or I could kiss this behind and hope it works. Because you know what? No, I'll be honest, you know, because at least then, you know, you don't have to dance or anything when you're honest. Just, honesty is honesty. Mm -hmm. And he replied with, thanks, we'll be in touch, which I very reasonably thought was a polite way of saying, get lost. Right. So I thought, you know what? I took my shot. I'm never going to get to do Star Wars, but at least I tried. But you know what I can do? I can do my own dream sci-fi RPG. And that's when I started thinking about what if Gary, instead of writing a fantasy game in 74, had written a sci-fi game in 77. And that was the impetus for White Star. And so I'd taken my shot on Star Wars. It was never going to happen. So I would just write the sci-fi game that I wanted to write. And so I started writing White Star. And White Star went from concept to completed draft in six weeks. Wow. I had a framed picture of Ralph McQuarrie's concept art from Star Wars, the Vader versus Luke concept art, where Luke's got like a gas mask on and they're in the hall of the Tantive. I had that framed above my computer as I was writing 
is people are like, oh, it's a Star Wars rip. It's not really. It is pulp sci-fi. More than anything, it's influenced by Ralph McQuarrie's art, whether that is Star Wars art, Battlestar Galactica art. He did concept art for Masters of the Universe. Most people don't know that. You know, Ralph McQuarrie got around. And I love his art. And I love his art style. And more than anything, that is where White Star is rooted, is in that style of art. And I was like, well, D&D is not a setting. So White Star shouldn't be a setting. D&D is a genre toolbox. Mm-hmm. It is specifically sword and sorcery style fantasy. It's not high heroic fantasy, especially in the old school. It's not high heroic fantasy like Lord of the Rings. It's sword and sorcery. So White Star would be pulp science fiction or even science fantasy, if you will. And I wrote it very specifically to be 100% compatible with no conversion. Mm -hmm. So that way you could drop in any white box products and by extension, almost any old school products with almost no conversion or no conversion. Uh, Partially because I really like Spelljammer and I really like Dragonstar. So somebody could pick up White Star and pick up a white box book and mash them together and get flying pirate ships in space with swords and laser guns all at the same time without having to worry about any kind of conversion. And then I got the email back after White Star came out that, you know, they offered me to work on Star Wars. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. Because I figured with White Star out there, so much of it is an homage that they would see it and be like, nope, we're never hiring that guy. You know, he's skating too close to the line. And I, and I got to work on like four Star Wars books. It was pretty awesome. That is awesome. And I really appreciate the notion that while Star Wars inspired, your game is intended to be setting lists like original D&D and that it's directly compatible with Swords of Wizardry White Box. I would like to know, you mentioned how you first came across Swords and Wizardry, but did you get a chance to play a lot of Swords and Wizardry? Uh, quite a bit. I was playing in, in weekly Saturday night games with people from around that side of the of gaming community and that designer community. So we were playing like weekly games. And even if it wasn't white box specifically, which sometimes it was, it was, you know, Swords and Wizardry Complete or Low Fantasy Gaming. And the rule sets are so similar in a lot of those cases that it gave you a chance to see independent design implemented on the table so you could see how it translates from page to play, which I think is hugely important, especially, you know, given what I said to to Fantasy Flight. You know, you can read something on the page and it reads like absolute garbage and then you play it and it plays amazing or vice versa. Something that reads like it's going to be the simplest, easiest thing in the world and it, it falls apart when the dice hit the table. Yeah, and unfortunately we've all seen examples of both of those scenarios. So you got to experience Swords and Wizardry in similar games while designing this game, which was very beneficial. Were there any other games worth mentioning that contributed to White Star? Star Wars D6 obviously had a huge impact just because I played it so much as a kid. Hmm. All of the retro clones floating around in the OSR side of things, they definitely had an impact because you would see the amount of like unorthodox material. Like it was okay to break from the tradition of the fighter type, the thief type, the wizard type, the cleric type, which is why White Star has like an aristocrat and a pilot. When you're designing sci-fi games, you think about the tropes within that genre. It's not a straight D&Dification. When you have a pilot class, that could be Han Solo or it could be, you know, the last starfighter. It could be anybody who's in pulp sci-fi, so you have to paint the class that way. An aristocrat could be, you know, a character from Dune, or it could be, you know, Lando Calrissian. You have to look at the archetypes and the sci-fi subgenres that you're familiar with and think about how can you express that in the both broadest and simplest context possible so that people don't automatically assume that this is the limits. It's more like this is the beginning. This is where I start. That's why you didn't see, you know, a straight wizard, you know, with spells just sci-fied up. Mm -hmm. Because you're emulating a different genre, you have to accommodate that genre. 
And it's fun, man. And some of it is, you know, a heavy rip. Star Knights are pretty much exactly what you think they are. <laughs> but if you wanted to run a game using Dune, you could take away the Star Sword and then you, know, you could easily do Twisted Rabbit and have a Benny Jesuit. It's not that hard. Or if you were using White Star to do a Star Trek game, you could have a Vulcan who's, you know, got strong telepathic abilities. It's easy to look at what's on the front of the tin and assume that that's all it is. And when I wrote the classes for White Star, I wanted it very much to be a starting point and not an ending point for people. Take this and run in a different direction with it. Run where you want to go with it. Okay, awesome. And I do want to talk more about classes, but quickly before we do that, could you tell us a little more about the other media that factors into White Star? You mentioned it being pulp sci-fi and science mm -hmm. fantasy. Flash Gordon, John Carter, Masters of the Universe, Battle Beyond the Stars. You know, the original Battlestar Galactica, the Battlestar Galactica remix, Last Starfighter. It's so all over the place as to any kind of sci-fi that didn't have a slow pace. And there would be elements you took from things that did generally have a slower pace that would fit within that. It was just anything that was pulp sci-fi. It was like everything in the kitchen sink. You know, there's hints of Alien in there. And I hadn't even seen Alien at the time. But I knew, you know, enough about the material and the feel of it to go do some research and be like, how do I incorporate that feel for those who want it? Um, there's Starship Troopers. There's homages to Starship Troopers in there. And primarily the movie, because uh, the book, I feel, is a bit more hard sci-fi. And the movie's great. If you take the movie at, at face value, you shouldn't. It's you know, a schlocky pulp sci-fi film. So, all right. Oh, and, oh, so, oh, oh, oh. Go ahead, and go music. music, 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 music. The 1986 Transformers, the movie, that movie and that soundtrack, that soundtrack played on loop as I was writing White Star with its heavy metal, larger than life synth orchestrations. Like that was on loop as I was writing White Star. And I'm sitting there singing Stan Bush at the top of my lungs as I'm pounding away on a keyboard. Nice. I agree. Music is very important when trying to achieve the right aesthetic during the creative process. Okay. We have influences ranging from Star Wars to Masters of the Universe to the Transformers 1980s movie soundtrack. If a game group enjoys any of those books, movies, comics, toys, or albums, and is inspired to run a game, what would that group need to run White Star? Uh, you need the core book, a uh, d20, and a couple of d6s, and that's it. Perfect. Okay. And what would the average gamer find familiar about White Star? It's built on the same framework as pretty much every edition of, of Dungeons & Dragons ever. The same six attributes, concepts like hit points, attack rolls, armor class, saving throws. You know, all of that's familiar. All of that's right there. It's what it's rooted in. So there's definitely a heavy element of familiarity in that respect. Your attributes are still 3 to 18, though having an 18 in something means something different in White Star than it does like in 5e. But there's going to be an instant familiarity, I mean, right under the way the character sheet is laid out. So it's not going to be, forgive the pun, it's not going to seem very alien. Pun will be used entirely. Uh, absolutely, it should be. Every pun, all the time. I very much agree. Okay, so we did touch on setting and tone a bit, and I love that this game does not have, as you mentioned, a specific setting. I mean, there are some great games with ingrained settings, but there are also some where the setting seems to weigh down the game. I agree. And I agree with your assessment of D&D as a genre toolbox without a required setting. Even given the massive amount of content for published settings, the game itself is clearly designed to take place in 
any fantasy world, usually of the Dungeon Master's own invention. And so I really like that you accomplish that here and have given players access to a variety of sci-fi and science fantasy universes with your game. That said, you do provide some implied setting, and I was wondering if you might speak to that content well, there, a little bit. There's a, a sandbox in the back. Mm -hmm. There's the Kelron system, which is like a little star system you can start your campaign in, and it's got some implied setting material. You don't have to use it, but it's a great jumping off point. And in the GM chapter, I even go over, oh, there's a reference, inspiration for I imagine, you know, Firefly and Serenity. You know, I make reference to common sci-fi, particularly, you know, pulp sci-fi tropes and setting implications. So, like, if you want to run a more Star Wars-y style game, here's a good things of what classes you want to highlight or how you want to change them. Or if you want to run a more, you know, Dune-ish style game, here's some ideas of classes you want to highlight, rules you may want to change, you know. Or if you're running a game where it's more Firefly-ish, here's some stuff you might want to do with the Starship rules. You know, it's so not a setting, it's a genre. And you can tighten that genre or open it up more as much as you want. White Star is first and foremost a toolkit. Right. And so while the starter module is there and it does have a little bit of setting information, it's not compulsory. You don't absolutely don't have to use it, but you can. And it will give you a good idea of not only what sort of game you might play in it, but more importantly, how the system works as a whole, more of a proof of concept, what a starter module really should be. Yeah, exactly. And the module is very, for lack of a better term, dungeon crawly. It's, you know, an abandoned space station. You have to find a thing and get out and deal with what you find. But it gives you a chance to, you know, light the fires and kick the tires. You know, here's a mm -hmm. sense of what you can do with the system, you know, and then run, run with it from there from however you want. Absolutely. And I think it accomplishes exactly that for anyone that might be interested in playing, but is unsure of what direction to take the game initially. Okay. So would you describe this game as rules heavy or rules light? It's absolutely rules light. Okay. And you mentioned that it's only a D20 and a couple of D6s, so we're not using the full array of dice that you would use for a D&D &D game? No, and that was intentional. That was by design. Because White Box doesn't use anything other than a D20 and a D6, and I wanted to make sure compatibility was a priority in the design. If, you know, you're sitting down to play White Star and you want to pull in a monster from White Box, and, you know, you open that monster in White Box and the other monsters in White Star, you know, if, if they had had a D8 hit die or a D8 for something and the monster had a D6, then you have to pause and think, well, do I want to add plus one hit point per hit die? Do I not want to do anything? How is it going to throw the balance off? It basically let the games be so much more interchangeable by keeping to that core D20, D6s. Okay. And then as far as the system is concerned, would you say that it lends itself more to a battle grid, more to theater of the mind, or it could be either one? Could be both. It could be both. I'm a very theater of the mind guy, but the game still says, you know, your movement is X number of feet. If you have a grid and you say, you know, okay, each square is five feet, each square is 10 feet, and the game does list the movement for player characters and every monster in the game, it's very easy to battle grid, but it doesn't include a lot of the fiddly bits of 5e, which some people like and some people don't, but like there's no attacks of opportunity, there's none of that like circumstantial type, you know, flanking and stuff like that. It's not really there. All right. And I can see where that would make combat a bit simpler. Okay. Something I did want to ask you about as well, base hit bonus. Is that out of white box? That is. Okay. Because white box has a variant. Every Swords and Wizardry product and third-party license includes both ascending and descending armor class. So to me, you know, I always felt that descending armor class, while not complicated, it is counterintuitive to a game where almost everything else needs to be a higher number. 
And even if in your mind, if for only half a second, you have to stop and reverse your gears, that still breaks the flow of the game. So I designed White Star and my White Box products to implicitly, though not obligatorily, use an ascending armor class. Okay, excellent. I prefer the ascending armor class myself. Matt Finch even said it was more intuitive, even though it's not, you know, traditionally what would have been used. But I do agree with that. Okay, take a look at your game here. Something that was very important to White Box but I feel has become less important as D&D has gone on is experience points. Could you briefly cover the experience point system in White Star for us? It was very much a port of White Box. It was very much an XP for items recovered, locations explored, and foes defeated. And again, that was for, for similitude between the two systems. Personally, I tend to run a more loosey-goosey XP system. You know, X number of XP for an encounter, or X number of XP at the end of a session, or, you know, a level after two or three sessions at early levels with it going on as you go on. Because if you do the math of actually earning XP, it takes a very, very long time to reach a character at max level in White Star White Box. But on the other side of that, even White Box, the original Matt Finch rules, state that people of fourth level and higher are considered rare and extraordinary heroes. Like, you don't encounter many people that high level. So, you know, I'm only fourth level. Well, you're only fourth level in a 10 level game. So really, yeah. it's, it's almost like being seventh or eighth level. I mean, being level two even puts you well above the average person. So. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, think about this. You go from, you know, you double your hit points. That alone. Right. And on the topic of hit points, I did want to talk a little bit about hit dice. As you read through it on the chart, for instance, the aristocrat at level one is hit die one. Level two, hit die one plus one. So the hit die is always a D6, regardless of class in this game? Always. So like one plus one will be, you know, at first level you had a D6, so you roll your D6 or take max at first level, which is how I usually run it. And then when you hit second level, you get plus one, or you could re-roll one D6 plus one. In both cases, you're still going to add your constitution modifier if one is present, though in white star, that's still only at best a plus one. So hit point totals tend to stay low, which is one of the compromises I think was made in the game, and I've often seen people who give increased hit points at low levels to further emulate the more daring elements of pulp, which I think is fair. I've seen people run it where they give someone their con score at first level for hit points and then follow the chart, which I think is a very valid way to play the game. But again, that's for, for similitude with white box because it is first and foremost a toolkit. And I say it over and over again in the book. The book is riddled with box outs that say house rules. And the term house rule was very specific in the text. I didn't want to say optional rule. I wanted to say house rule to give it a sense of informality and flexibility. This game, I may have written it, but it is your game. And I want anyone who picks up White Box or White Star to grab it and turn it into that. I am never going to come to your door because you are not running it the right way. There is no wrong or right way as long as everybody's having fun. So if you run your White Star White Box games where you give your players full constitution score as their first level hit points and they're having fun, rock on. You know, that's what's important to me. So house rule was a very specific term because it encourages things. When you say to them, oh, well, this is a house rule. Whereas how many games have you been in? Well, the optional rule says there's a certain invitation when you use the term house rule that's not present in the wording of optional rule. And maybe I'm being pedantic, but I think it's kind of important. No, I think you're absolutely right there. And that's something that you took from Swords and Wizardry, right? Because mm -hmm. all over that book, he has every house rule and variant that people were using but didn't make the text. Right. So. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And also, in here, looking at it, it just says 
ST, which would be saving throw. Correct. That works a little differently than the average player, I think, would be familiar, wouldn't you say? Yeah, because one of the things that's unique to Matt Finch's original design on White Box that deviates pretty heavily from the 74 era D&D is Matt and Marv wrote it with a single save. You know, you don't have save versus death and save versus breath weapon and save versus wand staffs and rods. You have saving throw. And you might have a bonus based on your class, but having it just be saving throw lets you move into a faster realm of play. It's a trap, make a save. It's a poison gas, make a save. You know, it's an undead fear check, make a save. Oh, I'm a cleric. Okay, you have plus two to that save. It keeps the play fast versus stopping for those six seconds to see which save is it, and you, you don't break the flow of the game, which I'm all about. You know, White Star's a pulp game. It needs to move fast because as soon as you lose that momentum, you're not getting it back. So I'm a big proponent of single save. And you can use saving throw for more than just traditional saving throws. Oh, you want to leap across this big scary chasm? Make me a saving throw and add your dexterity plus your level. You know, add your dexterity modifier plus your level. You know, oh, you want to see if you can lift the big rock? Okay, make me a saving throw with your strength modifier. You know, in traditional D&D, saving throw is a reactive thing. You can very easily turn a saving throw into a proactive thing where you don't have to rely on ability checks where it, it stays static. Saving throws, it improves as you level. And so the saving throw starts high and decreases as you level, mm-hmm. correct? Because you're trying to meet or exceed that number on a d20. So like at first level, you might have a 15. And it generally for most classes, it starts at around between a 14 and a 16 and goes down one point per level. So you end it somewhere between a six and a three on a D20, which is, you know, you're rounding about averaging about a 75% chance of success at 10th level, which is huge. I mean, not most people are going to get to 10th level, but I've seen people play White Star and I've run games of White Star where people have been like, well, can I make a save to try to do that? Well, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, I mean, it lets players feel more involved and they feel more responsible if they ask for a save, flub it. They don't feel like blaming the DM because, well, they asked for it. That's true. Okay. So then the next question I have for you is what are the character creation steps for White Star. Could you run us through those quick? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Again, it's written for compatibility with White Box. So if you were running it straight by the book, though there are house rules littered all throughout character creation, it's 3d6 for each of the six attributes, strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, charisma. You're going to get a negative one if you have a six or lower and a plus one if you have a 15 or higher in those attributes as an attribute modifier. After that, you would consult your class, look at the level one information, which is going to be zero XP, tell you what you're going to roll for hit dice, which is either going to be 1d6 minus one, minimum one, 1d6 or 1d6 plus one. You'll add your constitution modifier to that. You'll note any class abilities you receiving such as star knights start with a star sword it'll include things like what weapons and armor your class is allowed it'll note what your saving throw value begins at and almost every class receives a plus two against a specific kind of thing so go back to star knights they receive a plus two to resist the special abilities of other star knights and those who manipulate psychic energy and then you would roll 3d6 multiply that number times 10 that is the number of credits you start with and you would use that to purchase your gear and then your character is done it fits on an index card Nice. And so what sort of choices are left to the players during that process? I would encourage referees not to force players to do 3d6 down the line. I like 4d6, drop the lowest, place them where you want. It gives characters a little better chance at having a bonus. Amen. And then what you want to do, because it's no fun making characters who just die, especially in a pulp sci-fi game, just drop dead. I agree. Your primary choice, the biggest choice that's going to impact your character, White Star does not use fantasy races. It uses a more traditional race as class model, which 
which I am a big fan of. White Box does use races, though often the races in White Box are limited to a single class in their choices. So that's interesting. It's almost race as class. But there is no, if you have a non-human character, then they are assumed to be of a specific class. There are three non-human classes in the game. They are Alien Brute, Alien Mystic, and Robot. However, it's very easy to say this character, who is a Star Knight, happens to look like, you know, a blue-skinned elf with fox, you know, fur around their eyes, and I call them a Prokian. You know, it doesn't make any statistical difference, but it lets you look like whatever you want, mm-hmm. which I'm a big proponent of. And your class is going to be your biggest choice. Your class options are aristocrat, which is definitely, obviously from the title, a socially driven class. They are your face man. They are your Lando Calrissian, your Dune style space noble, you know, your starship captain, even. They're a character who relies on their force of personality to accomplish things instead of violence. Then you have Pilot, which again, title is kind of self-explanatory. They are good at flying the ship and driving the vehicles. One of the things I wanted to do with Pilot, though, was to give them an ability. They have an ability called Jury Rig, which is very intentionally loosely written. It allows them to potentially manipulate starships, what they are repairing, but also might be used to manipulate robots or control panels or other technology. Because I hate games where when the pilot is not in the cockpit, he feels useless. That is frustrating. And nobody wants to play a character where they're sitting around waiting for their chance to do their one cool thing that they never get to do or only get to do every three sessions. Then you have the mercenary, and that is your classic, you know, heavy armor, heavy guns. I lay the smack down. I shoot down, you know, the army of faceless troopers. I'm the guy with the repeating laser rifle mowing them all down. They are the big guns, quite literally. Then there is Star Knight, and they are your noble psychic warriors. You can take that to mean what you will. They are most well-known for their use of a melee energy weapon, which I entitle a Star Sword. One of the very specific things, and this was a very specific element of Macquarie's art, having a direct impact on the game. If you look at Macquarie's early Star Wars art, almost everybody had a lightsaber. And do you know why? Because lightsabers are cool. Laser (laughs) swords are cool. If you want to have a character who can use a laser sword, I want you to be able to do that. Laser swords are cool, man. You know, Star Wars has been around since 1977. Name a cooler sci-fi weapon. You can't. Doesn't exist. You know, <laughs> so for a cool factor, like mercenaries can use them. And, you know, Star Knights specialize in them. And alien brutes can use them because they're cool. So I wanted that to not be a specific thing to that class. They have what are called meditations, which function similarly to white box spells, though they are often more internal and more abstract in nature. They're very rarely overt physical actions. So you're not going to be slinging fireballs or casting transmutation spells. You're going to be doing things like telepathy, levitating, you know, healing touches, things like that. Then you have the alien brute, which is very similar to the mercenary, except they are also very, very skilled brawlers, and they get a lot of sensory abilities. They can see in the dark. They are more likely to notice unusual situations. They have heightened senses because they are not limited by the human spectrum. Good examples of those would be pretty much any Klingon from Star Trek ever. Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, Chewbacca, Camorian Guards, you know, you could even argue that Voltan from Flash Gordon, Alien Brute, you know, it's that classic big hulking alien who's just glad to get in and mix it up with his fists. To me, that was an important trope to cover. The Alien Mystic covers the other side of spellcasting, but they are not the wizard 
to the Star Knights cleric, they are an alien mystic. They do weird, strange things with their powers, often illusion or deception, heightened perception. It's still very abstract. I didn't want White Star to have in its rule set rules for doing things like throwing fireballs in space that felt too overtly fantastic. Besides, it was already present in White Box, which can easily be ported over. And the Alien Brute and Alien Mystic cannot ascend to 10th level. I think they both stop at around 7th. That is intentional. I'm a big believer in human-focused games, both because in my mind it's a movie, and in sci-fi movies there's always more humans than there are aliens because that's how casting works. So I wanted to keep things a little more focused on humans. And the last class is the robot, which is exactly what you think it is. You are a robot. And when you make your robot, robots can only go to fourth level, but they receive a highly advanced sensory package, and they pick a specialty. And they are very, very good at a few very specific things based on which package they pick. But in trade-off, they do not get to advance to a very high level. I believe they cap out at four. And I believe between all those seven classes, I had in broad strokes, I thought, covered the tropes of pulp sci-fi. I think so. I can't think of anything you missed there. So I would agree with that. It got broad nethers. I think the Galaxy Edition has like 20 classes where I started going just nuts. And, you know, oh, you want to do a computer hacker? Here's a computer hacker. And And a mecha pilot. Here's a mecha pilot. But White Star in its original incarnation was a toolbox. So I had to paint broadly instead of going to those more tightly focused things. That's right. The Galaxy Edition does include a lot more class options. Now, I understand the classes have level limits, just like classes in White Box or earlier versions of D&D, which, as a third edition native, I'm not crazy about level limits, but I understand the reasons for them. But taking a look at the robot class, I wonder if having such a low level limit would make the class well, less it, it interesting to a lot the, of players. With the robot thing, it really came down to, well, if you go to 10th level as a robot and you're already highly skilled, why wouldn't the robots take over? And plus... Because you can look at like a four level class and pick up the mathematical pattern, it's very easy to just say, all right, I want to make it a 10th level. Here's what the XP would be. Here's what the hit I would be. Here's what the state would be done. Mm-hmm. If you're upset with a level limit, it's very hackable. And it's designed, again, designed to be that way. That's true. That sequence would be pretty easy to pick up on. I do want to cover character advancement here in a second, but real quick, the ability scores are the same that the average player would be used to. Yep, same ones, same range, 3 to 18, classic 6 that everybody knows. Okay, so we've covered the different classes. We've covered races class and how someone could skin the different alien species. Mm-hmm. We did touch on level progression, but I would like to discuss character advancement in White Star a little further. When I designed leveling up, I looked a lot to the XP charts from White Box and based things a lot around that taking into account that characters who are more skill or special ability driven such as aristocrat or pilot are not going to be engaging in combat as often. That's why their XP charts are much faster because they're not going to be likely to be as active participants in combat. And a lot of classes that are more front-loaded might have a heavier XP chart. Like, you know, the mercenary starts out right out of the bat. He can use any weapon, any armor, you know, able to fight multiple hit-die creatures in one round abilities right out of the gate. So you want to slow that down so that that character isn't running over everyone from the get-go. Same with the alien brutes. And with the Star Knight, I believe they don't get any meditations at first level. I don't think they start getting them until second. Yeah, they get one first level meditation at second level. Correct. And then it's a very recognizable chart. Yeah, it's very much inspired by the cleric chart from Swords and Wizardry White Box. And that is intentional because 
in every pulp sci-fi thing where the guy has psychic ability, whether it's Paul Atreides, Luke Skywalker, that's their class when the movie started, but they didn't have any abilities. So clearly they had to reach second level to get those abilities. And as a Star Knight, you're already starting out with the most powerful melee weapon in the game for free. White Box, which runs on a D6 hit die, a Star Sword does a D6 plus four. So you're talking minimum five hit points per attack if you hit. So that is devastating. Granted, you have to get into melee with it, but the fact that there is a class that receives one for free with a plus one to hit with it because of their class gives them an ability where if they're willing to get into melee combat, they can be quite effective, regardless of their meditation going on. Okay. And as far as meditations, you do give a sort of spell list, but as you mentioned, it's not the same options one would usually find on a spell list. Yeah, you're not going to see fireballs, monster summonings on there. It's almost all internal and insubstantial effects, and that's intentional. Again, in pulp sci-fi, you almost always see psychic abilities instead of actual overt magic. Not every time. And if you want actual overt magic, again, you can directly port from white box and drop it in to your campaign however you want. And part of it is, to be honest, it didn't feel right. I didn't just want to stick Fireball in there when you can just go to the other book. Then I feel like I'm making people buy the same thing twice, and that's just not fair. That's cheap to me. I mean, I don't mean to sound like a jerk here, but that's just, like, that's not fair. I don't make somebody pay for something twice. And as a fan, I do appreciate that, although you do have the Galaxy Edition, so I did pay for this twice. Fair point. But I'd like to point out Galaxy Edition has over 100 pages of content that was not previously published. That's true. And it's good stuff. I do feel like I got my money's worth both times. Okay, so an aspect of White Star that the average gamer today might find unfamiliar is the lack of skill checks, which I know a lot of OSR games in the old school tradition do not have. So players would just be performing checks against their ability scores. I am a big believer in removing or broadening skills. When you make a character, give me a one or two sentence about your background. Like, okay, I was a roustabout and a luggage thrower on a space freighter. That was my career, you know, before I became an alien brood or whatever. Okay, great. So when your character walks into a cargo hold of a ship to search for, you know, conspicuous containers, well, the roustabout might get a bonus to his intelligence check to notice that because he's got a background in it. Versus, oh, nope, your search skill's too low. You're just not going to have it. It encourages a bit of role play without forcing someone to, like, be in a spotlight. You can have a one or two sentence background and from that, discuss with the DM and discuss with the narrator what you'd like to accomplish. And the narrator is hopefully going to be open to reasonable ideas, which gives the game more of a collaborative feel and helps create player investment. And player investment's always good because that keeps them engaged at the table. I agree. That's not really written out in the rules. That's all figured out between the narrator and the player, right? Correct. Correct. That whole philosophy is not in the rules, though it is mentioned using saving throws or using ability checks. And an ability check is just a d20 equal to or under the attribute, the attribute itself, not the modifier. So you strength of 12, roll a d20, 1 to 12, you succeed kind of thing. And I'm a big proponent of that because, again, it keeps the story moving. And that's what I want in a pulp game. And the ability scores can be roll over sometimes too, right? Ability score checks are always roll under. Saving throws are always roll over. Oh, right. And then the minus one below six and the plus one above 15. Right. That wouldn't actually apply to an ability score check because the ability score check is totally based on the the number of the score, which is why I tend to prefer saving throw because it doesn't suddenly require you to roll under. I mean, in most 
D&D six attribute type games, once the ability score is generated, the only thing you need is the modifier. The number itself rarely comes into play, which is why I generally don't use ability score checks because it keeps bringing that number back into play and reverses low is suddenly good for this one roll. So and I don't like to do that because it becomes counterintuitive. Okay, so you don't use ability scores very often, but they are roll under in the game rules as written. Is that right? Correct. Which you had no say in because you didn't write the rules. Right, right. I'm using white box. So like, for example, let's say you have a strength of, say, 15. Mm -hmm. If I were to call for a saving throw using your strength modifier, you would consult your saving throw. You would roll a d20. You would add plus one because that's the modifier for a 15. Mm -hmm. And if you meet or exceed your saving throw with the plus one modifier, then you succeed it. On an ability score check, you would ignore that modifier, look straight at the number 15, roll a d20, and get equal to or under 15. And they're both equally valid ways to resolve it, but it really alters the success ratio. And the fact that it has to be explained that way is why I default to saving throw because it keeps the roll high mentality. How disappointed is it when you're playing a game where everything is roll high and suddenly you roll a 20 on the one thing you roll low and for that instant you're excited and you realize oh no i needed to roll low it's so counterintuitive to me as a designer mm -hmm. it again breaks the flow even if it's not the literal flow of events it breaks the flow of energy in a narrative okay i can agree with that and as you said with the saving throws you can always apply sort of ad hoc bonuses mm -hmm. to the die roll so like you said you have the 15 strength well you add that to your die roll because you're trying to roll mm -hmm. over the saving throw which starts high and goes low as you level up but if you're also a boxer and you're in a fist fight the narrator could throw a plus two on there. Or to go back to the guy who's throwing freight. Well, I'm used to moving these big boxes around. I'd know how to grab them right and use my back. Sure. Get a plus two. Well, that's a better example because my example is combat, which combat would be fairly familiar to the average player, right? Oh, very much so. It, it uses group initiative, which is where one side rolls a d6, the other side rolls a d6, whoever gets highest goes first, one side acts in its entirety, then the other side acts in their entirety, then there are optional rules for individual initiative, where every individual party involved in the combat rolls and then goes in that order. It can lead to some interesting things because if two people roll the same number, they act at the same times, they're acting both resolve and then the effects are applied, which means you could have this case where two people draw guns, shoot each other, kill each other, and they both drop dead, which is cool. <laughs> and then there's no one to ask who shot oh, first. Uh, McClunky. <laughs> Sorry. That just You know about that, right? The McClunky thing? Yes. They added that in to one of the later versions. It was like on the Disney Plus version of Star Wars for like two days. And they're like, wait a minute. What is this? Yeah. Probably for the best. So we talked about the initiative. And then you said that you favor the ascending armor class. Very much so. Very much so. How are the character armor classes determined? It starts at a base of 10 if you're using ascending nine if you're using descending and basically you are wearing armor your armor adds a positive modifier if you're using ascending or a negative modifier if you're using descending there are shields though because it's sci-fi they could be energy shields because energy shields are cool and in the case of characters with a high dexterity your dexterity modifier is applied as a beneficial bonus and i use that term because if you're using descending you would take the plus and apply it as a negative bonus to your armor class and there are certain meditations i.e special abilities of star knights or gifts i.e special abilities of alien mystics that may provide modifiers or for example i believe all robots receive a plus three to their armor class because they are made of metal and so in the example here you have ascending armor you're doing ascending armor everyone has a 10 mm -hmm. you're wearing medium armor that means you get plus four so now your armor class is 14 and again that 10 is there regardless of class correct it doesn't change. correct and then you have a 15 dex, you're the pilot, and so now you tack that plus one modifier for having the high dex. Yep. On top of that, your AC is now 15. They're trying to roll over that yep. versus descending traditional Thaco, which is, again, confusing. You start at nine, 
you're wearing medium armor, you subtract four. Yep. So now your armor class is five. You're the pilot with 15 decks. You subtract one. So now your armor class is four. Uh And they're trying to roll a four or less. No. Once you have that four, you then subtract four from 20, giving you 16. The pilot then makes their attack roll, adding their modifiers. And if the total of the pilot's attack roll plus modifiers is 16 or higher, they have hit the target. In descending? Or in descending, yes. You subtract it from 20? Thacko, to hit armor class zero. Right. I knew the acronym, but I guess I just didn't know that's how it worked. Descending, people know it if they were raised with it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you didn't grow up with it, and I did grow up with it, if you didn't grow up with it, it doesn't feel intuitive. And it only feels intuitive because, you know, those of us who grew up with it did it for 10 years. I never knew that because, again, I started on third edition. And so everything was ascending. And I appreciate that, especially in the armor class. You're the first person to tell me that Thacko is you're subtracting it from 20. Mm-hmm. I just assumed it was a roll under mechanic the whole time. Nope. And that makes sense that if your armor class is zero, then you have to roll a 20 or higher. Right. A 20, you know, with all the modifiers from the character. So, like, for example, if you were playing second edition and your fighter had a Thacko of 15 and your opponent had an armor class of zero, you would need a 15 and not a 20 because it's to hit armor class zero not to hit a 20 it gets very weird until you do it for a long time it's like drinking green tea all right well thank you for explaining that that's new to me and i'm sure that'll be new to some listeners is that green tea you're drinking there right now no i'm drinking coffee man perpetually me too all day every day okay So, Thacko aside, combat should otherwise be pretty ordinary. With attacking, of course, we're adding strength to melee attacks and dex to ranged attacks, like normal, right? Correct. Okay, so combat should be pretty familiar. Then, before we move on, I know we discussed the meditations and gifts a little bit, but I wanted to ask if there was anything we wanted to cover on how the powers work. I know some of them appear to require rolling. There are a couple of abilities that where it's like 1 to 2 on 1d6 special abilities, like, you know, searching for concealed doors or things like that and that usually lists within the description of the ability on the roll of a one or two on d6 or one on d6 you can't do x y or z but they are usually specific examples and not a generally pervasive rule okay and then are there any distinct mechanics things that you wouldn't find in white box and that the average player might not recognize starfighter combat All right, that's where I was going next. And actually, it seems unfamiliar, and it was the hardest part in designing the game, was making a functional Starship combat system that didn't feel like another system tacked onto an existing game. And it was my wife who had the idea. She said, well, it's really just a big monster they control. And she said that, and it like, light bulb went off my brain. Stat your Starship like a monster. Give it an armor class. Give it hit points. And then let the players control the monster. I'm the pilot. I determine how far it moves. I'm the gunner. I make the attack rolls. I'm the shield operator. I affect the shield rating. So it let starship combat be both unique and easily integrated within the system. That is definitely a challenge for sci-fi tabletop games. I was in a campaign of a different sci-fi game last year, and the GM told us that we were just not going to attempt starship combat because it just felt like a completely different game. And there's so many of them that are like that, too. Yeah, so that was very sage advice. Compliments to your wife on that one. Oh, my wife is a genius. Her advice has become more and more impactful. On another line of games I have, Hero's Journey, she is often credited as an additional author because I will consult with her about these things. Excellent. With that in mind, though, the mechanics then become very familiar for the Starship combat. You have initiative, you have attack rolls, you're adding your decks if you're a gunner, that sort of thing. I think it all makes sense. I don't know if there's anything we have to clarify in there, wouldn't you say? The only thing you have to clarify, and it's a little wonky and I couldn't think of a better way to make it work. Though I'm sure if I sat down with it now, I could probably come up with something 
something, is the way the shields work. You played three E, so you understand shields are basically damage reduction. Mm -hmm. But if your shields reduced any damage, the next round your shield rating goes down by one. So your shields eventually run out. And that is a bit outside of traditional combat. But I think other than that, it pretty much functions like combat. One of the things Starship Combat and Starship Rules and White Star don't cover is how long distance and faster than light travel works. And that is intentional, again, toolbox. Mm -hmm. Because in almost every science fiction game ever, ships travel at the speed of plot. So I wanted that to be a very fluid thing that the referee could determine based on how they wanted their individual campaign to work whether it was traditional faster than like hyperspace whether it was jump gates whether it was teleportation totally up to them ships travel at the speed of plot that's excellent okay you had mentioned the shields being similar to 3e for those who may not have played third edition could you explain the shield mechanics a little further yes almost every ship in white star if they have a shield generator have something called a shield rating and your shield rating could be anywhere from zero which is nothing to five six seven eight nine ten which is extraordinarily high anytime your ship is successfully attacked and takes damage the shield rating is subtract from the damage taken so if somebody shoots your ship and it takes three points of damage and you have a shield rating of two, the ship takes one point of damage. At the end of the combat round in which a ship has been successfully hit and the shields have resisted any damage, you reduce that shield rating by one at the beginning of the next combat round because shields eventually wear out. Actions can be taken to restore shields or increase a shield rating, but it is done to reflect so often in sci-fi you hear, you know, our shields aren't going to hold much longer. Our shields aren't going to hold much longer or one more hit like that and our shield generator will blow. I wanted an abstract and simple way to reflect that, particularly while still keeping small, fast starship combat deadly. So like most little, I think I called them stunt fighters. Yep. They usually have one or no shields because there are so many movies where you see them take one or two shots and they explode. Blue. Yeah, and you do stat out a few different common ships. The Stunt Fighter, Space Yacht, mm -hmm. Star Cruiser, yeah. different transports. And they're all built as frameworks to start from. So, like, if you want a faster Stunt Fighter that has fewer weapons, you know, increase the movement by 50% and reduce the weapon damage by 50% or whatever. You know, it's not a lockstep thing. It's a starting point. And there's extensive options for modifying spaceships and different spaceship modifications in that chapter. And that was intentional because I played so many Star Wars D6 games where every red set we got went into modifying the spaceship and it made it ours. And that is a cool feeling of getting to do this thing. You know, to me, it's like D&D where you would build your keep and then you wouldn't want to leave your keep. Star Wars in D6, you would build your ship, but then you could just take your ship with you wherever you went. So that to me was always a step up from domain rules was ship rules because you take your ship with you wherever you go. And I wanted players to be able to do that. And they would do that by purchasing modifications with credits. Yes, and your modifications, there is intentionally no listed limit to modifications, and there is a sidebar saying it is up to the referee to determine when a ship can no longer be modified. The cost of a modification is actually based on a ship's maximum hit points, the logic being the larger the ship, the more extensive work is going to need to be done to apply the modification. We give the example here, I'll just take the first one. Advanced shielding, this modification adds plus one to a starship's shield strength. Pretty straightforward. It may be 
purchased up to three times mm -hmm. and base cost is 30 credits. So how would that scale then? Okay, what ship are you putting it on? Pick a ship in there. Let's do the medium transport. What is the medium transport's hit points? 75. So 30 times 75 would be how much that oh. would cost. Yes, it's expensive. Oh, it says right there. It's bolded. Cost is multiplied by the starship's maximum hit points. Yeah, because again, to go back to D&D, how expensive was it to build a domain? Plus, in White Star, you don't have a lot of magic items to spend money on. Where are you going to spend your money? Who doesn't want a cool spaceship? Everybody wants a cool spaceship. That's very true. Taking a quick look, though, at the character equipment that you do provide, the list includes various weapons to choose from and then fairly usual items, as you said, binoculars, a flashlight. Yeah, and it's all a starting point. There's very specific sci-fi items in there, like a pocket computer, you know, long-range communicator, short-range communicator, stuff like that, you know, energy cells for laser guns, things like that. And none of it's very expensive, and it's all pretty rudimentary. Right, and you don't typically have magic items in a sci-fi game. You know, I've seen players try to drop, you know, I'll trade 3,000 coins to the wizard in the hut in the field for that, you know, magic sword plus two. Well, you're not going to have that in a sci-fi game. Agreed. All right. Before we move on, were there any other important mechanics that we didn't cover anything you would have liked me to have asked about? There are optional, I think it's in the core book, there are optional rules for cybernetics. And they are intentionally brief and loose because those cybernetics do appear in sci-fi pulp. They are usually more window dressing than anything. And they are more of a narrative expression than a huge statistical benefit. But I wanted them to be present and available if players wanted to include them without going overboard and turning it into a cyberpunk game. Okay. And could you give an example of some of the cybernetic options that you did provide? Most of it's very simple stuff. Replacement limbs. There's a couple of very minor things like enhanced strength, which is a nice way to get a small attribute boost if you're unhappy with like, you know, you rolled a seven for your strength and you wanted a nine or whatever. Because it is tough if you roll crap stats right off the bat and it gives you something to work towards. Mm -hmm. There's also advanced technology, which is basically the equivalent of magic items. And they are just exactly that. It's rare prototype technology and it equates to, you know, a laser pistol plus one or you know an energy shield plus two and all it is is it just it's advanced tech and there are a couple of minor items like one of them is a belt that actually gives you a shield rating as a person for a brief time or turns you invisible or things like that and they are very much the sci-fi equivalent of magic items they are meant to be rare they usually have a limited shelf life or limited number of uses but they give players something to work towards and i did not include rules for designing your own and that is intentional because when a player asks to design their own i feel like the referee should make it as hard or difficult as they feel is appropriate to their game excellent and i think that segues into my next question for you could you explain your thought process behind the aliens and creatures a little bit yes almost all of those are man that's a really cool monster that needs to be in a sci-fi game and a lot of them when you look at them you're like hey i recognize that i know what that's from i see what he's doing there and some of them are just there because i like them space ducks you know i think that's just fun and silly and fun so it needs to be there it's all built around premises that are going to be familiar to those who are familiar with space pulp genre and again it's all meant to be hey, this is kind of like Reavers from Serenity, but not quite. Can I run in different directions? There's actually a race of crocodile people in there. There's three types of crocodile people. And one of them is a group of shapeshifters that can appear human. And someone asked me, is that a reference to V, the old 80s TV series? And I went, no, but it could be. It's actually a reference to a crazy conspiracy theory put forth by a guy named David Icke. In fact, the monsters are called Ikes. <laughs> he is the progenitor of the lizard people control the world. 
conspiracy theory and he's published all these books on it because he's insane and that was just so funny and quirky and strange to me i was like that needs to be in so there is a race of shape-shifting lizard people who all have these abilities as aristocrats who could be secretly controlling an entire planetary network of transport ships or governments because people wrote weird stuff in the real world but the monsters are very much meant to be familiar because i started out by saying i started writing white star because i was never going to get to write star wars how many people have said man i wish i had a sci-fi game for xyz property that nobody else you know has Mm -hmm. and to an extent i wanted white star to be that you know and i I wanted people to look at me like oh that's familiar i see what he's doing there i want to grab that and build from that i want people who buy it to build from it and go nuts and the great thing it's an open source game like you can you can publish white star products and i don't make a dime and you know as long as you follow a license you don't need express permission and one of the first ones that ever came out for white star is a third-party product was by a guy named david oakham who does oakham arts and he did sailor moon white star i never would have thought of that and that's not my thing either i'm just like okay but, but like the fact that he grabbed it and i was like yes that's what i want people to do you know i want people to grab it and go in directions i never would have thought you know, so I, I, I give the familiar as a launching point, as a stepping stone. You know, take this and run with it. Absolutely. I think you accomplished that quite well with White Star. Okay. I think we've pretty much exhausted gameplay and mechanics, wouldn't you say? I would think so. Okay. The next, how did you go about playtesting the game? People often didn't know they playtested the game. Because I could just rename something and use the existing stats or give them a magic item that happened to function like a star sword in, say, an old-school fantasy game. It gave me a chance for people to playtest without knowing they were playtesting, which I felt was the most natural way to playtest. Because when you don't know you're playtesting, you are going to play more naturally. And that's what you want. An observed creature is not truly in its natural environment. You know that old saying. So that was kind of my logic in playtesting. Interesting. Well, that's very clever of you. At some point, though, you had to, or maybe you didn't have to, at some point you ran the game, though, right? No one who play tested white star ever knew they were play testing white star ever ever because hmm. i'd written so many class variants i have a hundred class variants before white star came out hey man i need to play test this class can you try it out for me oh it's a psychic fighter oh it's a socialite oh it's a technician okay interesting and so when this had hit the presses, nobody had ever actually played White Star, sat down at a table saying, "We're I'm going to play White no Star. No one had played White Star as White Star. They played White Box with some sci-fi elements, but they didn't know it was White Star, and they didn't know they were playtesting it. Excellent. So this would just be your regular group that you're running inside? Mm-hmm. It was my regular weekly group. At the time, I had a regular physical weekly group. Do they know that you did this to them? or Nope. To this day, they don't know. Okay. And when they listen to this, will they now be suspicious of you or are we just hoping that the podcast doesn't reach them? I don't think they will listen to this. They are all around 17 to 25 years younger than me. So so they're not going to listen to a podcast? You know how kids are these days, man. I knew I was out of touch with the man Facebook for old people. I was like, man, I don't really feel old. You know, as my wife and I say, we are no longer the target demographic. That is true, I guess. I fall into that boat too. That's painful. It's painful to realize, man. My wife and I joke that we stopped following actors and actresses after Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence. Like after that, there's been no new actors since then. We don't know anybody after that. Who's this person? Like, you know, somebody said to me, you know, do you listen to Drake? I was like, who's Drake? I've been in that same conversation, but that's more because I'm detached from pop music and people don't. Oh, yeah. I've I've had people who just can't understand. Oh, me too. I I couldn't tell you a, a top 
40 song could probably tell you top 100 song yeah like i cannot sing you a justin bieber song i don't know if I've, i'm sure i've heard him i don't know what he's i don't know any of his music i just don't is he even a thing anymore i don't even know if he's still a thing i, I mean i, I don't, I don't know. know now we sound like too old but i don't know you know we should be like sitting outside a deli and complaining about the kids these days which we basically are so that's right in so yeah i i don't know and my daughter is entirely involved with k-pop so that's the only youth music that i have any connection to so no idea i have no idea i, I don't know if and drake's up there I, I don't know who the hell drake is like i just don't so i know what a drake is but that's from being a role player. but that's because yeah we're, we're giant nerds yeah exactly okay so that's very interesting that no one knew that they were playtesting the game so what sort of challenges other than running the playtesting secretly behind your players' backs. What other sort of challenges did you run into, and did you have any failed experiments in the process? Playtesting starship rules without telling them their starship rules is not easy. Can't you say it's a boat? Uh, yeah, it's a flying boat. It's basically what it was. It was all flying boats. But then they start wanting to do stuff like leap off boats with ropes and, you know, do cool swashbuckly stuff that I'd never intended in the playtest. But I was like, hey, if I didn't intend it, then that's probably good that they're doing it. Mm. Because that's, you know, the other side of it. Yes, you know, they don't know they're playtesting, but then they're also not going to be bound by the confines that I would normally associate. That was probably the weirdest part. Refining some of the special abilities, the meditations and gifts took a little bit, but that wasn't too hard. A lot of it was... As you took stuff from the fantasy and put it in the sci-fi, you saw when the changes needed to be made naturally. Okay, so that's interesting. Do you remember any of those changes specifically? Anything that ended up on the cutting room floor? Star Swords originally did 3d6 damage. Oh, yikes. Yeah, and I was like, I want this to be a weapon whose minimum damage could still probably kill a low-end character. So I was like, well, 3 is a good low number. But <laughs> 3d6, you know, you do the curve and it averages out at 9. I was killing second-level characters in one shot as often as not. So I went from um, a linear curve to a bell curve, which made it both scarier and more controllable, which is why it does, you know, between five and 10 versus this weird bell curve that tends to average out around seven. Okay, so it ended up being 1d6 plus four, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, that still sounds scary. I think that was the right decision. Okay, so after you published the game, having secretly tested it on your unsuspecting players, did you then eventually get a chance to run a proper game as White Star? I did. I did. It was published on May the 4th because for once I had a marketing smart idea. <laughs> I put it up late, late, late at night on May the 3rd and there was some excitement about it. People were interested in it and I was like, oh, it'll do okay. It'll be fine. And when I woke up the next morning, it was number one on RPG Now and it stayed there for nine months. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts. I was like, what is this? This is crazy. Like, it was just insane. And I ran it not as often as I would like because people were clamoring for more content. So I was doing, and as usual, doing more writing than playing. The White Star Companion, the follow-up book, was mostly stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor because I didn't want the game to get past its toolkit roots in a core form. Basically, if White Star Core Book is the toolkit, the companion is, this is what I did with that toolkit. So I spent a lot of time working on that. And I got to play White Star maybe half a dozen times in that nine months it sat at number one. Not very often. Also, at the time, I had a daughter who was one year old you know, and working a full-time job. So it was so crazy busy. And by that point, I was freelancing on Star Wars, which I couldn't tell anybody at the time. So it was just so insanely busy. I look back on it, like, man, how did I do that? 
Jeez. It was crazy. And thank God for Jason Paul McCartan, who was my partner in White Star. He's my editor and my layout guy for that book. And he was just my saving grace and kept me sane through all that. And he's the reason White Star looks as good as it does. White Star was originally going to be another lo-fi white box style publication because I could just do it myself. And he read it and he said, this is too good for you. He said, I can't let you do the layout on this. this. You'll make it look like garbage. And that's when the production values on it shot up. Well, the layout looks great. So he was right. You should probably stick to your strength, which is apparently designing games, not designing the books themselves. Okay. So you did get to play White Star a few times after it was published. Do you have any examples of how White Star led to great gameplay? Any good stories there? There used to be a con in Maryland called Trident Con. I my kind of Eric Jensen. I think he's moved from Maryland since then. And I got to playtest, and they knew they were playtesting us, some stuff in the companion, the vehicle rules in particular, and had a great, 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 awesome through the city chase scene with the vehicle rules. And it was one of those things where, because I tend not to use miniatures, I didn't have miniatures. It was one of those things where they were so engaged in the chase that we looked down and realized we had taken dice and like block erasers and made a map before anyone can remember how we all did it and they were like you know this red dice is our speeder and this green dice is their hover truck and then you would have vehicles crashing each other great stacks of dice and like the dice were flying so fast and so furious and everyone was so invested that what few rules there are for the game got completely out of the way and that's my favorite thing in any game design ever i also got to run a game of it for a fellow star wars freelancer a guy named keith Capel, who is awesome i love keith he is obi-wan to my Anakin, and I got to watch him play a Star Squirrel, a Ratatoskr, which is something from the Galaxy Edition, and they are literal squirrels who use tiny, tiny star swords and are horrible, horrible murder fiends. <laughs> and watching him play that was awesome. And Star Squirrels came about, it's a Galaxy Edition thing, but they came about from a bet with a friend. He's like, I bet you can't make, not a squirrel person, but just a squirrel. And I was like, oh, I could put a squirrel in my game. I love squirrels. Squirrels are the coolest thing ever. I figured it's my game. I'm going to put tiny psychic murder squirrels in my game with laser swords because I can do that. I wrote the darn game. I suppose. I mean, if David Ogden come out three months after the game's out with Sailor Scouts, I can put murder squirrels in my game. And, and then I got James Shields to do the art for me. And the art for that piece is great. He's got like, this like tattooed up, like actual squirrel with a little green wooden glowy star sword looking like he's going to eat your face. It's great. I've actually got the original. He gave it to me because he's awesome. Oh, and I have a white star tattoo. You have a white star? Tattoo. I have a white star tattoo. Speaking of James Shields, when we did the Galaxy Edition, we did a, a white star logo, and it's obviously a star shape. And the last time I was at North Texas, James Shields and I, and he did a lot of the art in regular version and almost all of the art in Galaxy Edition. When we met up in Texas, we went out and we both got tatted together, and we both got the white star tattoo. Could you describe the image or tell us where to find it? I don't think it's in the original. I think it's only in Galaxy. It is a eight-pointed star with kind of a black starburst coming out behind it. Okay. It's in the Galaxy Edition, and it's basically the symbol for the Star Knights. It's like okay. their symbol. So, because there is a supplement out there called Walking the Way, which is a Star Knight specific supplement with a bunch of Star Knight variant classes and new meditations and rules for constructing unique star swords because you need something to spend more money on and star sword fighting styles and stuff like that. And you wrote that, right? Yes, I wrote that. Okay, it wasn't a third party publication. All right, while we're on the topic of the Galaxy Edition, I did want to ask do you introduce different dice in the Galaxy Edition? I don't believe so. It might be one or two occasions, but I. Don't believe so. Oh, the reason I asked, I just cracked open my PDF for that. And again, I haven't spent a lot of time in here. And there's a squirrel with headphones. 
which I love the headphone stuff, but it has a D20, a D6, and two D10s. Now, there might be reference to percentage dice in the section on dice, but I don't think I ever actually used them. Because I remember James doing that piece. I know the exact piece you're talking about. Yeah, it's another example of great art in the book. Okay, another quick question as we're winding down the rules section here. Can you cross-class? No. Nope. Okay. No, because I hate multi-classing. That's fine. Actually, there are optional rules for it. That's the one thing I removed. The companion has rules for multi-classing, and I yanked those out in Galaxy Edition because I only included them because people asked for them, and I hate multi-classing. It's a personal thing of mine. I shouldn't let it interfere with my design, but it just bugs me. Well, it can be cumbersome, and while there's some instances in which it makes sense, a lot of the time it's just overcomplicated and more of a novelty than a necessity. I've never seen it done smoothly. I've never seen it where it doesn't just feel like somebody number crunching. It never feels sincere to the game being played. I have seen a couple of logical multi-classes, but you're right. In my experience, they're certainly not the norm. Yeah. Okay, so multi-classing didn't survive from the Companion to the Galaxy Edition. Are there any other major rule changes that come with the Galaxy Edition? The only big rule change is an 18 gives you a plus 2 instead of 15 to 18 giving you plus 1. Okay. That's probably the biggest, like, formal rule change. But other than that, everything else is like, ah, there's a so many, like, that book is bigger than it should have been. It's got so many optional rules. I mean, gonzo stuff, the cybernetics expanded. I had rules from mech. You can do custom mecha. You can do transforming mecha. You know, there's 22 or some odd number of classes in there. There's an additional star system. There's expanded meditations and gifts and new cybernetics, new advanced items. It's just more and more and more and more of what's already there just taken out to the nth degree and then all put in one book. If White Star is a toolkit, White Star Galaxy Edition is a tool chest that's already been filled up. Because there's so much in there. I think the most important thing in Galaxy Edition is actually also in the Companion. And that is the biggest complaint I got when White Star came out. It's a great sci-fi game, but it's only got Starship rules. It doesn't have vehicle rules. So for people who feel the game is incomplete without vehicle rules, I would recommend either adapting the Starship rules very easily or the vehicle rules, which are themselves an adaptation of the Starship rules, which are in the White Star Companion or in White Star Galaxy Edition. Okay, excellent. So then, regardless of edition, is there anything in White Star that you are most proud of? Its general success to this day shocks me. Oh, you're the guy who wrote White Star, you know? Like, I had a comment on a YouTube thread the other day. Oh, you're James, you wrote White Star. Thanks for writing such a great game. I'm just a dude who sits around in Hawaiian shirts. Like, I'm really not that special. The fact that I get to be associated with something I wrote is intrinsically tied to me. And something that I wrote that I'm proud of, that I'm very proud of, you know, is so well received almost in six years. And people still remember it and still play it. You know, that's really gratifying. That's freaking cool, man. It is. You know, it absolutely is. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love having gotten to work on these big IPs and all the history and stuff. But White Star, for all, you know, the nods to other franchises, is still my game. It's still my creation. And for other people to, like, embrace it and love it like they have, that's humbling. That's a gift. Yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it. You know, so anytime it's like, oh, you wrote White Star? That's so cool. It's like, no, thank you. It's hard to accept that because it's, you know, no, nah, dude, you made it your game. You did your thing with it. That's what makes it cool. Yeah, and obviously your humility on the topic is admirable, but you can rest assured that the recognition of your talent is well-deserved, especially where it comes to White Star, I agree. So, okay, if you had to put it into words then, what does White Star provide to the role-playing community? Well, as I was a toolkit, toolkit, toolkit. It is a pulp sci-fi toolkit. Grab it, 
pull the tools out of it, put tools into it, grab third-party stuff, grab any white box stuff, mash it all together, and make it your friggin' game, because that's what I want it to be. Which a lot of gamers already have, and that trend will continue. Okay, being that the game has such an open concept, would you say that you have a target audience? Uh, A lot of people have said it's a good game for introducing new gamers. Okay. And I actually think that's a good point. I think it is a good game for new gamers or for rules-light gamers because you can fit a character on an index card that makes it easy to run, that makes it easy to do. I have a friend of mine, James Shields. He used it as a teaching tool for his kids for everything from math to vocabulary to consequences of actions. Nice. You know, my target audience, I guess I didn't really have one when I wrote it. It was like, this would be a cool game. I want to write it. I know that's kind of a cop-out answer, but if you want a pulp sci-fi game that you can easily hack, don't have to invest a lot of, you know, super crazy nuts numbers into, White Star's going to be what you want. If you're looking for hard sci-fi, White Star's not going to do you. It couldn't do Heim. It could, but it's not built to do things like Heinlein or... Not much in the way of Star Trek. It's not that harder, slower, more cerebral sci-fi. And I enjoy that kind of sci-fi. But of course. I, that's not what White Star really does. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be. We have that elsewhere. And White Star is great at what it does. So, okay. Do we have any future plans for White Star? Yes. And that's all I'll say. Okay. White Star definitely has a future. I wish I could say more but I will refrain from doing so. Okay. Well, that's your prerogative, so you're welcome to keep us in the dark for now. Hopefully we can hear about it in the future. But do you have any other upcoming projects that you can tell us about or that we should keep an eye out for? My big thing I've been working on now is The Hero's Journey, which is very Tolkien, Lewis, G.K. Chesterton-style fantasy that focuses more on... British and Celtic mythology and the themes of fellowship and friendship and the presumption that the characters are heroes instead of just, you know, more traditional sword and sorcery, five from Game Master Conan types. That was pretty successful for me. I really, really love that game. We currently have a couple books out online sometime in the coming months. We're hoping to do a, a second crowdfunding project for that one to do a, a line of supplements that'll include a huge source book on fae and fairy lore and another book on festivals and a few other surprises. That's what's looking like it's next in the pipeline. I've got a few other surprises that I'm poking around on, but uh, I want to kind of see where they go. I put out a game called Skaldic Sagas, which was a mythopoetic pre-Christendom Scandinavian role-playing game. Feels very much what we would think of as Viking culture and Viking mythology. Mm -hmm. It was used the same system as Hero's Journey, and I would very much like to do other kind of genre games that are just one-shot games like that. So there may be more of those in the future. I have a lot of fun with that. I really like tinkering. The Hero's Journey is almost an evolution from White Star, because it started out as a white box game, and then as it evolved, I stepped so far outside the white box, it became its own thing, but you can still see the white box chassis there awesome well we definitely want to have you back to discuss that game in more detail on a future episode i I would love that i love that i would love yeah love to have you back on the show okay any other projects that you wanted to mention that's pretty much it i'm doing some freelance gigs that i'm under non-disclosure and i can't talk about so also cool oh 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 i am upcoming speaking upcoming freelance gigs i just finished a short adventure for star trek adventures role-playing games that's kind of cool the modifius one yeah yeah. Awesome. That was kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So where would you direct our listeners to 
purchase a copy of White Star. You can go to the Gallant Knight Games web store. They have copies of Galaxy Edition. You can purchase the original White Star and the White Star Companion Galaxy Edition as well, all in POD at drivethroughrpg.com. And just search out Barrel Rider Games or White Star, and I'm sure it'll come right up. You can also find several third-party settlements and a free license for if you decide you want to publish your own White Star stuff. Perfect. Maybe I will write something for White Star. Yes. Do it. Do it. Do it. (laughs) Well, we'll see. Free time isn't something I have an abundance of. Okay. So where should listeners go to keep up with your work? I would recommend either the official Gallant Night Games fan group on Facebook or the Barrel Rider Games page on Facebook are the two best places to keep up with me. Excellent. And we'll be sure to have links to those pages in our show notes. All right. Any final words or sage advice for our listeners before we go? Nothing I have said about my games is gospel truth. My games are your games as soon as they are in your hands and under your eyes. Thank you again, James, for stopping by the Guild Hall to share with us the origins of White Star, a best-selling tabletop RPG that plays like the original game and feels like the original cut. We believe all listeners should visit the Barrel Rider Games collection on shop.gallantnightgames.com to order a copy of White Star and begin your own laser sword-wielding interstellar adventures. After all, in a period of galactic civil war, when faced with armored shock troopers and sinister void knights, you might find that you are someone's only hope. Before we lock up, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Logo design for our show was done by Elijahnist. Special thanks this week to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast, Hodag RPG, Alan Barr at Gallant Night Games, S.L. McClellan, and Rikolas Weishaupt for their help in completing this episode. And as always, thank you to all listeners. If you are enjoying the show, please leave DDG Pod a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or review us on your preferred podcatcher. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend or post a link on social media. Every additional guild member will help keep the doors open that much longer. That concludes the 11th episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you star knights and alien brutes, we escaped again. But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky. (laughs) 